0: Let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this opportunity that we have to be able to sit under the preaching and teaching of your word. We recognize that when your word goes out, it does not return void, but it accomplishes that which you purpose. And we ask that you would do that now. And so, Father, we pray, again, that you would help me to be able to communicate your word clearly, to be able to see how it applies not only in my life, but in all our lives. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The poor cannot afford to have bad luck. Gary Hogan, a believer and president of International Justice Mission, has seen global poverty up close for the last two decades. Here, what he says about what it means to be poor. He says this, I recall the way an old history professor of mine defined poverty. He said the poor are the ones who can never afford to have bad luck. They can't get an infection because they don't have access to any medicine. They can't get sick or miss their bus or get injured because they will miss and lose their menial labor job if they don't show up for work. They can't misplace their pocket change because it's the only money they have left for food. They can't have their goats get sick because it's the only source of milk for the family. On and on the list goes. Of course, the bad news is everybody has bad luck. It's just that most of us have margins of resource and access to support that allows us to weather different storms that we face because we're not trying to live off $2 a day. Now, when some of us hear Gary Goggin's description of poverty, we may think, this is unfair. Some might even say, this is unjust. Why should hardworking people have to live through life in this way? We don't need to think very long before we can think of other instances of injustice. I mean, during this past year, we have heard or read of news of senseless shootings where innocent people die because of someone's violent behavior. We've also read and heard of instances of racism in our country, whether it be violence against African-Americans or violence against Asian-Americans. We see around us as we drive through our city just economic disparities all around us. Families go to sleep hungry because they don't have enough food to eat. And this happens not in countries far away, but even in our own city. And if we think too much about these injustices, it can be quite discouraging. Now, the presence of injustice can also sometimes make us feel spiritually apathetic. I mean, as we think about the woes of our community, we may wonder, where is God? Why doesn't God do something? Why doesn't he change things so another innocent person doesn't have to die? Another family doesn't have to go hungry. Why can't bad guys be put behind bars and innocent people go free? Why do women have to raise children when the father leaves on their own? And these instances, these events, these stories sometimes erode our confidence in God. Our appetite for spiritual truth diminishes because how can we follow a God who seems to allow these unjust acts to occur? I mean, for others of us, this injustice prompts us to act. It leads us to join organizations to fight human trafficking. We join groups that would advocate for socially depressed communities. We decide to teach in areas where most teachers tend to avoid. And we do this to try and make a difference. Yet over time, it seems as though our efforts yield very much results. We begin with great spiritual fervor, but then that fervor over time diminishes because we wonder, when will justice ever come? And this could also lead to spiritual apathy as well. So then how do we avoid spiritual apathy when injustice occurs? How do we maintain a life that believes in God even when the injustices around us make us feel helpless? Well, we avoid spiritual apathy when we realize that we need God more, not less, when injustice occurs. That we need to press into our relationship with God more and to be able to hear God's voice, especially when we hear news of another senseless shooting. We need to ask God for His help when we hear of another instance of racism. That we need God more when injustice occurs, not less. And the nation of Israel needed to learn this lesson. They needed to learn to press into God when injustices occurred. When the nation of Israel returned to the promised land, the neighboring nations mistreated them. Slander caused them to pause construction on the temple. Nehemiah faced opposition in rebuilding the wall. And if it wasn't enough that foreigners were mistreating the community of Israel, even within the community of Israel, you had fellow Jews mistreating fellow Jews. And these regular experiences of injustice caused Israel to experience spiritual apathy. They began to complain. And Malachi, hearing their complaints preaches to them God's reply. And this complaint and reply will be the focus of our message this morning, and it's found in Malachi chapter 2, verse 17. So if you're not there already, please turn there with me. Malachi chapter 2, verse 17. Now, in this morning's text, we'll answer three questions. First, what does injustice tempt us to think about God? And then second, what does injustice make us anticipate from God? And third, what does injustice prompt God to do? So, first, what does injustice tempt us to think about God? Second, what does injustice make us anticipate from God? And thirdly, what does injustice prompt God to do? Okay, so first question what does injustice tempt us to think about God? Well, injustice tempts us to think that God doesn't really care about justice. That if God really cared about justice, then God would actually do something. If God is just, then wouldn't he ensure that justice is done? Injustice tempts us to think that God does not care about justice. Now, Israel believed that the injustice in their community meant that God no longer cared for them. Now, this prompts Israel to conclude that God must now think that what is good is evil, and what is evil is good. Israel believed that God supported evil. Now, I mean, after all, he didn't do anything to stop it. So Malachi writes this in verse 17. You have wearied the Lord with your words. But you say, how have we wearied him? By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? Now, within the Jewish community, some had adopted the practice of worshiping other gods. God did nothing to stop them. Some no longer honored the marriage covenant as Moses commanded them, and God did nothing. The lack of divine intervention prompted Israel to really wonder, does God really bless these actions? I mean, Israel doubted God's care for them as well, that They believed that if Israel obeyed God by worshiping him as outlined in the Mosaic Law, then blessings would come. God would establish a Davidic king. This Davidic king would overthrow their Persian overlords, and Israel would rise again to prominence. Well, instead, the post-exilic Jewish community had to pay tribute to their Persian rulers. They had to fend off neighboring enemies. If God really cared for Israel then he would do something. He would save them. And this is why Malachi writes in the second half of verse 17, where is the God of justice? Since God had left them, then Israel saw no reason to worship God as God instructed or abide by his instructions, because if God's not with us, then who cares? Everyone looks out for their own interests, because if they didn't look out for their own interests, God certainly wouldn't. Now, sometimes we find ourselves echoing the Israelite community. We believe that God doesn't care when injustices occur. I mean, when we, miss, when we face mistreatment or injustice, we wonder, where is God? I mean, imagine the traffic light turns green on Main Street. You make a right turn onto Holcomb, and suddenly you feel a jolt. Your car spins out of control. The airbags deploy, and as you recover from your days of wondering what happened, you see the perpetrator speed off in the other direction. And your first thought is, where is the police when you need them? And the second thought is, where is God? Why didn't he just allow that guy to be caught? I mean, you had the right of way. You had the right of way to turn, but then this happens. It's unfair. It's unjust. Now, we also may hear of instances of injustice and we wonder, where is God? We listen to a news reporter ask a resident in a depressed community, asking them, so since CVS has a stockpile of COVID vaccines, do you plan on getting vaccinated? And then the resident responds, do you see a CVS in our community? I won't even know how to get to CVS to get a vaccine. I mean, where is God? It's unjust, it's unfair. And it's easy for us to think that God doesn't care about justice when we see so many injustices around us. So what do we do to avoid thinking and believing that God doesn't care? Well, we need to remember how we unjustly treated him. I mean, Israel had treated God with half-hearted devotion. I mean, earlier in verse 17, Malachi describes God's response to Israel's complaint. In that first half of verse 17, he writes, you have wearied the Lord with your words. You have wearied him. I mean, that word shows up twice. And that idea of wearisomeness is this idea of a a parent well knows that when a child complains to the parent, you always take her side, even though he instigated the fight with the sister, right? It's as though God is saying, you're going to complain to me about Justice. I mean, you haven't treated me, me with wholehearted devotion. You offer lame sacrifices. Your priests fail to instruct the people in the right way to live. You don't value marriage. You don't worship me exclusive. Now you expect me to help you. You expect me to bless you. I mean, don't you remember that part of the covenant is for you to wholeheartedly devote your life to me? I'm tired of this complaining. And we sometimes treat God with that half-hearted devotion as well. I mean, we think that because we pray every day, attend small group, participate in Sunday morning worship, that we should not receive any type of mistreatment. I mean, why should I be passed up for promotion? I mean, why does the student I tutor get into medical school? Why does that person get into this residency program? Why does this sibling seem to receive all the favor in the family? But if we're honest, and we examine ourselves, do we just mumble our prayers so that we can get to the day's tasks? I mean, do we attend small group, but our mind wanders off into the basketball game that's actually happening concurrently? Or do we participate in Sunday morning virtual gatherings, but then as a the sermon is playing, you're checking your Facebook feed? Yes. I see you, right? I mean, do you think that God doesn't, you know, care that you just have this half-hearted devotion to him? I mean, you're treating him like a vendor. You, You believe that if I do this thing, then God will have to do this for me. I mean, but that's not how God works. Now, some of you may think, I'm wholly invested in following God. I'm sold out for Christ. I pray with fervor. I participate in small group. When my small group leader asks for help, my hand is the first one that shoots up. When I'm at worship service, I have a laser-like focus on every element in the service. And yet mistreatment still happens. Injustice still occurs. So I think it comes down to expectations. What do we anticipate God to do when injustice occurs. And this prompts our second question for today's message. What does injustice make us anticipate from God? Injustice makes us anticipate God's coming to bring justice. When we experience injustice, it creates within us a desire for God to come and make things right. And that when we hear of those instances of injustices in our life and in other people's lives, we look forward to when God comes to correct these things. Injustice makes us anticipate God's coming to bring about justice. Now, Malachi predicts the coming of the Lord to bring about justice. Here's what he says in chapter 3, verse 1. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek... Will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? From these three verses, or two verses, excuse me, we can see three things that Malachi predicts about the coming of the Lord. First, a messenger will prepare Israel for the coming of the Lord. In ancient Near East customs, a messenger would go before the king to prepare the city for his coming. The messenger will make sure that the right accommodations are made. The messenger will prepare the people on what to say and what to do if they ever cross paths with the king. And in the case of Israel, the messenger will prepare the hearts of the Israelites to receive the Lord. Malachi writes that in verse 1, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. Now, second, the Lord will come into his temple. Now, why is this mentioned? Well, if you recall, when Moses completed building the tabernacle, the Spirit of God entered into the tabernacle in the form of a cloud. And many years later, when Solomon finished construction of the temple, again, the Spirit of God would enter into the temple in the form of this cloud. Now, Israel failed to obey God and failed to honor the covenant, And so then, later on, they were taken into exile, and Babylon levels the temple. It's completely destroyed. Then, after their time in exile, they return to the land, and they rebuild the temple. The temple is finished, but the Spirit of God does not enter the temple. They're still waiting for God to return. Now, Malachi predicts that when God returns, it will happen suddenly. It will be unexpected. No one will expect the return of God to the temple. One might say that the Lord surprises Israel when he actually arrives at the temple. I mean, look at this in verse one. It says, And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. Now, let's talk about the third observation. The third prediction is that no one will be able to resist the Lord. Malachi writes this in the first half of verse 2. But who can endure the day of his coming and who can stand when he appears? Now, there are two verbs here, endure and stand. Now, biblical authors oftentimes use these terms to describe how no army can overcome the power and judgment of the Lord. And unlike other contexts, though, in the Old Testament, where it refers specifically to the enemies of Israel, this particular verse refers to God's own people. It refers to the nation of Israel. Now, why is it important that we anticipate God's coming? Well, God only can bring about true justice. Only He can render a complete and full judgment. I mean, why? After all, don't we have a judicial system? Don't we have judges, prosecutors, juries, defense attorneys? Why can only God administer true justice? Now, while we do have a judicial system, it doesn't always work perfectly. Uh, For instance, not all witnesses will tell the whole truth, nothing but the truth, during a trial. Uh, The jurors attempting to remain neutral have natural biases A prosecutor may persuade the jury to accept the idea that the evidence points to the conviction of the accused, but then there are flaws in their argument. And a defense attorney attempting to defend their client may help a guilty person actually go free. A judge may render a sentence, but sometimes the sentence may be too harsh or too light. Now, I'm not saying that we should do away with our judicial system, but what I'm saying is that while it does provide a measure of justice, It's not perfect. Well, then how can God bring about true justice? Well, God knows motives. He knows our thoughts and our hearts. He knows when a person has to run a red light in order to get his pregnant wife who's ready to deliver to the hospital. But he also knows a person who runs a red light because they're intoxicated. He knows when a person is stealing food to feed their starving family versus the person who's embezzling millions of dollars just because of greed. God also knows the act. He is present everywhere. He knows every single deed and event that happens. There is no crime or injustice that he does not see. God knows the innocent as well as the guilty. He knows exactly how the crime and unjust act goes down. And he doesn't need to play Sherlock Holmes or detective to discover what happened. God also knows the appropriate response. He knows the appropriate punishment. He knows each person so well that he knows what is the appropriate punishment for the crime. For each person responds to punishment differently. Some people respond better to a fine. Other people respond better to time in prison. But the punishment will match the crime when God is the judge. Now, some of the things in Malachi have already happened, but then the question is, why do we still need to anticipate the coming of the Lord? Why do we still need to wait for God to administer his true justice? Well, let's talk about some of the aspects that happen here in chapter 3, verse 1 through 2, especially those that have been fulfilled. So first, the messenger has already come. In the New Testament, the gospel authors, as well as Jesus, state that the messenger that was to prepare the way before the Lord is actually John the Baptist. And John the Baptist describes his ministry as one of bringing the people of Israel to repentance by baptizing them so that they would be ready for the Lord's coming. And unfortunately, if you remember, that it was the outcasts that were in the water and the religious leaders who stood on the river banks. And they didn't really understand, these religious leaders, their need to repent to prepare for the coming of the Lord. Now, there's a second prediction that has been fulfilled. The Lord has already come. Instead of the Lord coming to the temple in the form of a cloud, he comes in a human body. God incarnate, the Son, enters the temple. And when he arrives on the temple mount, when he arrives at the temple, no one greets him. It fulfills the prediction of Malachi. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. Now, when you read those verse, it sounds like Israel is looking forward to the coming of God. But the phrase, whom you seek, is actually a sarcastic statement. A better way of highlighting that sarcastic flavor would be to render it, whom you claim to seek. That when Jesus arrives in the temple, no one actually seeks him out. Now, there's the third prediction of judgment. Where is the judgment? Well, if you think about it, if Jesus is the Lord who comes to the temple and Jesus brought judgment, no one would have survived that judgment except for Jesus. He's the only righteous human being who walked properly with the Lord, and he lived his life in a way that pleased him in every way. So, if Jesus at that time brought judgment to Israel and to the ends of the earth, then every single person would be condemned to destruction because of sin. But then, instead of bringing judgment suddenly, Jesus goes to the cross to, to take on the judgment for our sin. He pays for the penalty of our sin so that whoever believes in the saving work of Jesus Christ will be saved from judgment. This fulfills the prediction of Malachi in the latter half of verse 1 in chapter 3. And the messenger of the covenant, in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. The messenger of the covenant refers to Jesus, that Jesus replaces the old covenant with a new covenant based on his saving work on the cross. This means that the judgment of God is pending. Before Jesus ascends into heaven after his resurrection, he gives his followers a commission to share the good news of this new covenant to the world. In a way, Jesus sends us out like messengers, messengers like John the Baptist to prepare the way for a second coming, that we are to call people to repentance. And when Jesus returns a second time, he will bring judgment to the wicked. And those found on the day of Jesus' second coming who have not placed their faith in Christ will experience God's wrath. All right, let's move to the last question that we're discussing this morning. It's this idea of what does injustice prompt God to do? What does God do as we live in a world where injustice occurs? Well, injustice prompts God to purify His people or judge evildoers. There are two options. There is purification and then there is judgment. He will refine the character of His people He will bring condemnation to those who are not. Now, injustice then prompts God to purify his people or judge evildoers. Now, Malachi predicts that the coming of the Lord will bring about purification or destruction. Now, first, Malachi predicts that the Lord will purify the Levites. Look with me at the latter half of verse 2. For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in former years. So there are two images for purification, for cleansing, that are used here. First, you have the refining of a precious metal, silver, and then you have the washing of laundry. Now, a refiner would remove impurities from a metal through heating it up in a crucible and then cupping off the dross. Now, the second, the person washing the clothes would use an alkaline substance, kind of like baking soda, to whiten clothes. Both images convey the idea of cleansing and purification. And this is a work that we now know is done by the Holy Spirit. Now, Malachi predicts that a specific group will receive this purification. It's the people known as the Levites. But then what happens to the other tribes? I mean, that's just one. Now, some believe that the reason why God purifies the Levites is because they're the spiritual leaders of Israel. That during the time of Malachi, the Levites have not been shepherding God's people according to his word. I mean, exhibit A, the blemish sacrifices. Exhibit B, the heretical teaching of the priest. And so Malachi predicts this top-down approach where God will purify the Levites, and then through the Levites, the rest of Judah and Jerusalem will then begin to worship God properly. So we have to ask, so have the Levites then received this purification of God during the ministry of Christ? Or are we still waiting? Well, I think there's a kind of yes or no answer to that question, because if you recall, there are 13 tribes of Israel, but God takes the Levites to be his own tribe, to serve him. Therefore, there are 12 tribes that are mentioned, and the Levites serve as the mediator between God and the 12. Now, I think that the Levites, God's own, may actually serve as a type, referring to God's children. And John in his gospel describes believers, Christians, as the children of God. And Peter also describes Christians, believers, as priests, that we are a royal priesthood. So in some sense, this prediction has been fulfilled because the Spirit of God does this purifying work in believers, this idea of sanctification. But it also may be fulfilled in the future when God may purify the tribe of Levi, to lead Israel to worship him. And that might occur in a future time. So there's kind of a yes and no, already not yet type feeling here. But what we know here is that God will purify. But then there's the other idea. God will also judge. Malachi predicts that the Lord will destroy the evildoers. Look with me at verse 5. It says this. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired workers in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. God will serve as judge, witness, prosecutor, and jury against these evildoers. The primary descriptor of these evildoers is that they do not fear God. They don't think God is watching as they attempt to manipulate the spiritual forces for their advantage to get what they want through sorcery. But God is watching. When someone goes to meet their mistress, they believe that no one knows. But God knows. When someone utters a lie, even though they've uttered an oath to swear to tell the truth, they think no one will know that they've told a lie. But God knows. Employer underpays an employee for their tasks. The employer thinks, no one will ever audit my books. But God knows every single Excel spreadsheet, every single number that is entered in. Some may think that they can take advantage of the widow, the orphan, and the refugee, but God knows their treachery. If God knows all these evil deeds, then how can we possibly escape his judgment? And for those of you who have not believed in Christ, then you'll know that judgment awaits you. And while we may complain there are so many injustices around us, we have committed a grave injustice toward God by rejecting His rule. And yet God demonstrates His mercy to you by providing a way of escape through faith in Jesus Christ. And you have an opportunity to experience that purification through the Holy Spirit by faith in Jesus. Now, for believers, and we see all these injustices around us, we have to entrust justice to God. Yes, we must be responsible to pursue justice the best we can in the spheres of influences that we're in whenever we see an opportunity, but we shouldn't feel discouraged when our efforts towards justice produce few results because ultimately we know that God will bring about justice on this earth when Christ returns. So when it comes to injustice, what should we do? We need to trust God to deal with our acts of injustice and the injustice of the world. Now let's review what we discussed this morning. Okay, So we covered three ideas. First is injustice tempts us to think that God doesn't care about justice. The second idea is Injustice makes us anticipate God's coming to bring about justice. And lastly, injustice prompts God to purify his people and judge the evildoer. John Stott shared an imaginary story of how the cross speaks to injustice and suffering. An imaginary poor man from the slums of Brazil climbs 32,310 feet to the top of this mountain where there is a colossal statue of Jesus Christ that towers over the city of Rio de Janeiro, okay? Now, after this difficult climb, the poor man finally reaches Jesus and says, I have climbed up to meet you, Christ, from the filthy confined quarters down there to put before you most respectfully these considerations. There are 900,000 of us down there in the slums of that splendid city. And you, do you remain up here surrounded by divine glory? Go down there to the slums. Go down there to the favelas. Don't stay away from us. Live among us and give us new faith in you and in the Father. Amen. Stott then asks, what would Christ say in response? to such a prayer. Would he not say in the suffering of the cross, I did come down to live among you, and I live among you still? Then Stott adds this, we have to learn to climb the hill called Calvary, and from that vantage ground, survey all life's tragedies. The cross does not solve the problem of suffering, but it supplies the essential perspective from which to look at it. Sometimes we picture God lounging, perhaps dozing, in some celestial desk chair while the hungry millions starve to death. It is this terrible character of God which the cross smashes to smithereens. Injustice reveals that we need God more, not less. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we recognize that you ultimately are just. And we oftentimes complain that injustice is getting its way in this world, not realizing one day you will return and to set things right. While we should care about the injustices that we see in our communities, help us to realize that we have committed a grave injustice towards you by rebelling against your rule, and that we would desire to reconcile our relationship with you first through faith in Jesus Christ. And that your spirit would empower us, yes, to work towards justice in our communities, but more so, develop a patience to know that, Jesus, you will return to set things right. And it is for that end and hope that we work and pray. Help us to do that well. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.